Strange Animals Podcast brings you weekly family-friendly episodes about surprising, mysterious, or just plain strange animals. From colossal squid to hummingbirds, tune in to discover your new favorite animal. Find us at strangeanimalspodcast.blueberry.net or subscribe through your favorite podcast app. Hello and welcome, friends and enemies. It's perhaps it's you time. It's an unofficial Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast. I'm Liz. And I'm Samantha. And the jingle jangling you hear is my pup, Lenny Briscoe. It's Lenny. He's here too. And so is Curtis. Curtis is around. So... He's happy today though because Mac and Lenny are here. Although Mac's outside, so (laughs) that might upset him. Who knows what's going to happen. We're not sure. All right. Thank you for joining us. Hopefully yet again. Do we have any updates before we begin on this cold fall day i don't know that i have any unsolved mysteries or podcast related updates but i do think you need to tell us about your most recent spooky activity oh okay that was kind of going to be my recommendation but we can start off with it sure so last night i did one of the coolest things in my entire life and samantha was not there because she has an early bedtime it's true and more than once me and caitlin were like man samantha really messed out (laughs) I believe that I really missed out. (laughs) So I went to the historic home, the Alexander Ramsey House in St. Paul with friend of the pod Rochelle and also our friend Caitlin. Reported to be haunted, I believe. I don't even know. I know nothing about this home. Literally, Caitlin found this event that was Victorian seance, fact or fiction. And I was like, yep, I'm in. And tickets were $24, and I was like, that seems a little, like, kind of a lot to go to a historic home, but I like a historic home. I did an internship at a historic home, and, uh, yeah, spooky season. Yeah. Why hold back, right? And I was like, I'm buying my ticket. We're in. So, uh, we get there. First of all, we, the ticket just said, like, the doors will be open half an hour beforehand, but it didn't specify, like, which doors, and it was kind of a big house. Right. So, we walked up to, like the grand like front door of the home and it's already like very spooky looking it's like the perfect place to be going this is also like saturday night before halloween everybody is out like in costume wasted and the three of us are like we're going to a historic home to learn about seances (laughs) so i'm like i love this already we go up to this like very creepy looking house caitlin like puts out her hand to like slowly open the door because we're not sure if we're like interrupting the tour before us you know and so she opens the door and then there's just another door (laughs) and then that door is locked okay so we're just standing that's spooky in the dark on the porch of this very spooky house going okay i i guess this isn't the way it's weird then we're just wandering around the, the outside of the house in the dark trying to figure out where we're supposed to go. But it has a gift shop sort of off to one side. And that's actually where you're supposed to meet. Uh. So then we go in. We're like waiting on little folding chairs. And I'm assuming someone's going to come out. They're going to give us a little history of the house. Then we're going to like maybe walk around the house, maybe look at a few creepy objects and talk about seances. That's I was what like, I would have expected. I was expecting something very dry. I was still 100% in, very excited. But then this woman in period dress comes out and was like, okay, so no food, uh, no flash photography, blah, blah, blah. And uh, let's go inside the house and begin the seance. And me and Caitlin just looked at each other like, what? 
an actual seance. A, we're here for a seance. This is the cool. Th- I'm more excited that, for this than my own wedding. <laughs> we were both like, and then Rochelle was like, "Yeah, what did you guys think we were here for?" Because of course, she actually like went to the website and read all the information and did her homework. And the two of us were just like, "I don't know. We just thought it sounded cool." <laughs> That's why we're here. Sounds about right. So we go into the home. We meet uh, the medium. He tells us a little bit about Victorian seances, different types of ghosts, how he's been doing this research. And then it's like, okay, you know, we're going to go into the other room. It's going to be dark. There's just going to be one candle around this circle table that has a black velvet tablecloth. It's pitch black in there. There's just like two rows, circular rows of chairs. If you could like make your seat, you know. Stay with your friends, but maybe nothing will happen. <laughs> That's okay. Da, 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 da. And then he had a few volunteers write a question that someone who was has passed on, only they would know the answer to. Put them in a little envelope that was going to box. We all go into this pitch black room. Uh, particularly men were pretending that they were not scared <laughs> when they clearly were. It was the, the ambience of this was like overwhelmingly creepy. And, like, so cool. So then he's like, oh, no, I forgot the slates in the other room. Excuse me. And he, like, leaves to go get the slates. And you're all just in there in the dark We're just all sitting there in the pitch dark with only one candle, like, ha. And everybody's, like, joking because they're (laughs) honestly, like, kind of (laughs) scared. And it was great. That's amazing. So then he comes back in. He does some, like, you know, I had to write the name of someone who had died. Someone else had to write the name of someone who was alive. And then you switch them around. And he, like, is able to see these names suddenly a glass behind me like tumbles off a shelf you hear little creepy noises happening he does this whole thing where like we are all given these slates and we check to make sure they're blank but then they end up answering one of the questions that's in this box he like he's like okay like reveals it and then it's like right spooky it's very spooky and then the light just goes out there's like a scream, a bell is ringing that you've been told is like associated with a ghost. And then you just see this like orb and he's yelling like, you, you, t- you see that, right? You have to tell me that you see that. And everybody's like, ah! And then at that point, the lights flash on. Someone from the historic home runs in and is like, you're being arrested for fraud. <laughs> and then everybody applauds. And then he went, did the rundown of how they would have faked that. That's so cool. Back in the day. And it was so cool. That's It was such a, like, honestly kind of creepy experience. It was so nice to get, like, swept away. Like, you know it's not really real, but you also, like, don't know how he's doing it. Right. So you just get, like, swept away in this little experience. And then he's like, yeah, you know. He kind of, it's, it involves a lot of sleight of hand. And honestly, even with him explaining to it, I I was like, what? That's very complicated. Right. Like, the way he was able to, like you know, misdirect you and you thought that what you had written on was like still visible, but it was actually like tucked in his hand so he could read it. And he's like slipping in a slate that's already written on and all the ones you've examined that are blank. And like, that's really impressive. It was, yeah, it was actually very impressive. I didn't notice any of the like thing. Apparently one guy saw him put something in his pocket, but nobody else had seen any of the like sleight of hand stuff. And he was explaining how back in the day, Victorians had found a way to make silk glow in the dark so they would have people dress up and come in the room as ghosts someone had a trained monkey that they would use as part of their shtick which he said was his eventual goal 
His eventual goal was to have a monkey. Yeah, that he could use as part of the parlor trick. Amazing. And because people would have these, like, you know, parlors set up in grand houses specifically to have these fake seances and deceive people. So there would be entire rooms full of these glow-in-the-dark costumes so that actors could come down hidden stairways and trap doors. Because people we were, could make a lot of money off of this. So they would Amazing. have these very elaborate setups where really people in another room were passing you the slates, supposedly ghosts had written on. And it's so elaborate that you would think, oh, well, no one would actually go through all that trouble. Right. But then that's how your mind like kind of can't catch up with what's happening is you're like, well, there's no way they have 50 glow in the dark costumes <laughs> hidden up in the ceiling it's like but they do amazing it was honestly one of the coolest things ever that's so cool i'm really sad that i missed it i was like this is just too late i sort of already had plans in the evening and then i was just like oh i'd have to get to st paul it'd be really you know but i i wish i would have stayed up for it so i hope they do it again because it'd be really fun to do i yeah i when i was buying my ticket i was like 24 dollars seems like a lot for me to go hear about victorian era whatever and then I was like, this is the best money I've ever spent. <laughs> I've never been so f- fully, like, happy with all of my life choices. But it was kind of popular. So the earlier times had sold out. We were there at 10. And yeah. they had another show at 11. So, so cool. they were sort of like, all right. I like I, I had a lot of questions. I would have loved to grill that guy. <laughs> but he was like, yeah, you got to get out of here so we can get the next people in. Because he told this whole story about how he was connected to this certain ghost, you know, like there was this elaborate ghost backstory before yeah. we started the seance to sort of like sell you on the idea that this ghost was going to like come and ring a de- bell. He had this like doll, creepy doll's hand that he claimed mm, of course. the girl used to hold in this coal shoe while she was being punished by her, you know, like all this stuff to like really sell you on the, the spooky yeah. experience oh it's so good that's so awesome yeah i i don't yeah i don't even know what to say there's it was a great time few photos on our instagram go check out our instagram yeah, story i highlight. wasn't supposed to take a photo inside the house apparently i thought that was just flash but uh i definitely took one right after the seance so you can go see that i'm sorry alexander ramacy house i i misunderstood the rules I, I was taking a picture of a mirror that looked creepy and this woman was like no you can't take pictures. You can't take pictures. Like, as Rochelle is taking a picture in the other room. Because <laughs> we were like, oh, this is so amazing. We have to come here all the time. Because they had some other really cool events this season that we, I wasn't able to go to. They had one about um, uh, Twin Cities madams from the era. They had one about Victorian novels. It seems like they're doing a lot of cool programming over there. So That's awesome. Um, I'll just do my recommendation now, which, so that, I guess, is my recommendation. I realize that's really local and specific, but if you look into historic homes by you, you might be surprised that they would have events you'd actually be interested in. Yeah. That aren't quite so boring. Yeah, it's not just, like, a tour, but, which, I mean, that's cool, too, but right. it's fun to go and and do events like that. I know the um, Glassner House in Chicago does a, like, Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven reading every Halloween. Ooh. And I'm sure other historic homes have more spooky content than... Or, or do candlelight tours or do some sort of ghost yeah. tour. So even if you don't really think you're interested in that thing, maybe you are. Maybe you are. That's my recommendation. We'll start off the show with that. That's nice. That's a nice way to get this show started because, honestly, this episode's really good and I think we're really, like already just out of the gate like yes i this is a finally i'm not complaining at all this is a solid episode this is a good goddamn episode we probably lost all the listeners that you know 
were like, aren't they supposed to like Unsolved Mysteries? That one review that's like, if you like people complaining about the thing you're supposed to love, that you're supposed to like, this is the show for you. Well, I have much fewer complaints this episode. Yeah. Because it's same. It's quality. Okay, let's right, jump in. Liz, are you going to eat these zombie Skittles? Oh, also, as you may recall, we were talking <laughs> on an early episode about zombie Skittles, which occasionally have a Skittle that tastes like rotten. It tastes like yep. jalapenos and barf. Yep. But the rest of them are, like, good flavors. I just randomly was given one little, like, fun-sized pack of them. And I was like, oh, maybe if I leave it... Sometimes I leave stuff at Samantha's spot on the table for when she comes in. I was like, maybe if I just leave these, she'll get inspired to eat them. But I didn't really think that she I would. I picked it up and I was like, I'm not eating these. Although, they're, the packaging is very cute and it says, Most are delicious, but some taste like rotten zombie. Dare to try? No. No. I did put up an Instagram poll asking if we should eat these on the podcast, and I feel like people are saying yes, but we're not going to do it, so sorry. Yeah, it turns out we're actually not bound by the law of internet polls, so... (laughs) I mean, you you would have to pay me a lot of money to eat that. When Right next to the zombie Skittles are uh, gummy chicken feet, which actually tastes good, so... Gummy soda bottles? Yeah. And some gummy eyeballs. Yeah, we have other treats. We don't need the stupid zombie Skittles. No. That just ended up here. And we're, what we're drinking today, in case you were interested, was some cranberry wine from Trader Joe's. Just yeah. the season. Well, last Cheers. episode, when we were talking about how we'd be talking about the Yeti today, I said, oh, let's have an abominable snowman party. I still don't know what that is. I still don't know what that means. Not really sure. So, in celebratory whatever, we have some cranberry wine that I very, I'm very classy. I put a blackberry in it. It's very classy. So we can celebrate that we finally get to talk about Yetis today. Finally. You have to wait, though. It's coming yeah, later in the coming, episode. it's coming, but that's a teaser. Yeah, that's a, a so teaser. So they call it in the trade. First, we get A Lost Love, which, a great way to start out an episode, this is actually, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's a very sad, but it's also a really good Lost Love, and it starts off with my very first note here. Wow, this country sucks. <laughs> Go ahead, Samantha. All right. It's 1953 in Buffalo, New York, and we learned that interracial relationships were still considered taboo. Huh. 17-year-old Eleanor Platt didn't give a fuck. She became interested in a local man by the name of John Elias. He was African-American and 11 years her senior. They began began dating that winter. The two were inseparable and soon fell in love. I mean, that that picture of him back in the day, handsome. Smoking. And the reenact, the actor they got to play him looked very much like him. Yeah. And I was kind of like, yeah, I get it, Eleanor. Because right. she's like, hey, she. They show a reenactment of her at a table with her friends at like a diner, or cafe, or something, and she's like, "Hey, look at that guy over there. I think he's hot." And her friends are like, "You're crazy. We're racist, yeah. and you're crazy." And she's like, "I, I don't, don't care. care." And she just got up. <laughs> she's like, "I'm gonna go seductively suck on this lollipop by him," <laughs> and it worked. Yeah. So that was great. <laughs> she, uh, had good, she had good seduction techniques. <laughs> so they fell in love. When John eventually asked Eleanor to marry him, she eagerly agreed and made the decision to leave home as her family did not agree with their relationship. She literally climbs out a second floor window, according to the reenactment, with a hat box. She has two large suitcases that she just throws on off the roof. I'm like, there's no way her parents went near that. But she successfully snuck away from home. It does seem like her father was pretty much always drunk, so maybe he was passed out. Probably. So she snuck out of her parents' house at the end of December 1953 and lived with John until January 26, 1954. Her reason for returning home was that she had become pregnant, and she seems to think throughout the story that if she just tells her parents she's pregnant with his baby, then suddenly they'll come around. Or if she just tells her parents 
that she loves him, that suddenly they'll come around. And it's kind of misguided and naive, but I understand that she really wanted them to accept her relationship. She does not understand the power of, of white supremacy. That's true. Because it somehow doesn't seem to have really affected her, despite being this, like, very racist day and age. Yeah. She loved John. She didn't give a fuck. And she was like, my parents will see the light. They'll and, come around. Yeah, and she was just very wrong. Yeah, and John was apprehensive of telling Eleanor's parents. <laughs> John was a little bit more grounded in reality. I think John kind of, he knew what was up. He understood what would he happen. He experienced his life. He knew what would, he knew what the consequences of her telling her parents would be. He tried to convince her that it wasn't a good idea, that only bad come of it, but she was convinced that she wanted to do it. So she returned home to her parents and told them the news. Her father, who was an alcoholic and an overall asshole, was <laughs> furious. I hope that's what it says on his grave. <laughs> he was an alcoholic and an overall asshole yeah yeah he's i think he's name a- birth date death date <laughs> alcoholic and overall asshole that's <laughs> it and then the grave is untended pretty much so in the reenactment he's like drinking some shots and slurring his words and yelling about how she needed to get out of his house he's in a dirty white tank top of course you know? of course like but still wearing a belt, such a bad look. You know, he's still yeah. wearing, like, belted, pleated pants with his undershirt that's all stained. Yeah, and not, he's, like, not a good look. jowly and red-nosed. Yep. He's like, no daughter of mine is gonna be in love. It's like, no daughter of mine's gonna be happy. I know, right? I'm not gonna stand for it. It's like, well, your wife really made a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're, I want you as unhappy as your mother. <laughs> Pretty it's a much. family tradition. <laughs> Pretty much. So, this is where the story gets kind of Very sad. Very sad. So, Eleanor is sent to a home for unwed mothers. John was accused of rape. He was arrested at his job and charged with raping her and holding her against her will. The newspapers even ran stories that said that he held her captive for months, which of course was not true. And... Uh, yeah, he ended disgusting. up he ended up pleading guilty to the charges in order to keep Eleanor from having to go through with the tri- through a he trial. He clearly loved her so much. Yeah, he thought he was protecting her, and I mean, oh, it's so sad. All right, on September thirteenth, nineteen fifty four, Eleanor gave birth to a daughter whom she named Rosemary in the home for unwed mothers. She was forced to give her daughter up to social services shortly after, while there was like some sort of investigation. John was released from jail early uh, for good behavior, and him and Eleanor reunited. At this point, she had been released from the home because she had given her daughter to social services. They planned to marry and try and get Rosemary back, but then they made the poor decision to again tell her parents. Why? I don't know. Just burn their house down and move on. (laughs) I don't know. I don't I know. I have such good relationship advice. <laughs> please, please come to me. You can, you know, send me a message on Twitter. Say, what should I be doing in this situation? And every time I'm going to be like, dump him. Every time. Dump him. So not- And then in this situation, burn your parents' house down, move to another town, change your name. Just tell people you're already married. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it seems like for other people. In the 50s, you could literally move like one county over and just be, I would be like... Oh, my name is Violet Von Trapp, and I am a Norwegian royalty, and I'm here. And people would just be like, oh, cool. Yeah. No one would look into anything. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. So not surprisingly, Eleanor's father was again furious. He threatened John with a gun, and John was forced to flee. Then Eleanor's parents had her arrested for failing to obey their orders. 
Okay, we talk about what a nightmare today is. The past is a fucking absolute worst. What? Yeah. Why can you be... She's... First of all, she's 18 years old at, at this the, point. At this point, she's 18. And they go to the police and they're like, my daughter is not obeying my every word, <laughs> even though she is technically an adult. <laughs> and the police were like, we're on it, chief. Then <laughs> they arrest we her. We roll up. We're going to... This danger to society. We know how to best protect and serve, and it's throwing your daughter in the clank. <laughs> Or the clink, or whatever the fuck. <laughs> so Let she, me just drink my wine. She was sentenced to three a three-year term at a juvenile detention center, but told that her sentence could be reduced if she gave Rosemary up for adoption. Something that seems completely illegal since she was 18. Yeah. Also has, like, nothing to do with anything. No. So It's the, weird extortion. In the reenactment, we see her, like, parents taking her to this office, and she sits in front of what's presumably a social worker, and the social worker forces her, essentially, to sign over her daughter for adoption. And then it's like, one day I hope you realize you made the right choice, little girl. And then present-day Eleanor is like, if I had just understood the law better, which you wouldn't expect her to, uh, I would have realized that I didn't have to sign her away. I was 18. I could have just taken her and left. Yeah. And that's like the worst realization because she this this cannot be How legal. would she know about well, that? Well, she wouldn't have. And they knew that. That's why they were able to take advantage of her. I she th- thought she was going to have to go to prison for three years. Based on her thinking her parents are going to come around, it seems like, yeah, I do think she was a little naive. That's not really her fault. I'm guessing she was pretty sheltered. No. And well, th- there's just, why would she be familiar with this type of law? She right? wouldn't be. And a judge sentenced her to three years. Which I don't even understand how that's... A thing? I don't or legal? Or it can't be, but obviously it still doesn't happened. matter. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't seem to matter. Even still she had to spend six months uh behind bars. She was released six months after the adoption took place. Eleanor wanted to be reunited with John but could not find him. She later learned that he had been literally run out of town due to harassment by the police. Okay, so this woman is in prison. He can't find he doesn't know what happened to her. He doesn't know what no happened one will to her. Tell him. I'm sure her dad or other town losers from reading this newspaper story saying he's a kidnapper and a rapist. Right. Have, like, run him out of town on a rail. She's in prison, and her bunkmate's like, yeah, what's she in for? I stabbed a guy with a screwdriver <laughs> in the eye. And she's like, I did not obey my mama and papa. It's like, ooh, tough one. I know. Tough one. This is wild. Lock her up and throw away the key. <laughs> she's like, well, I fell in love with a very kind, handsome man, and obviously now I'm here. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, the consequences of of wanting to get married and have a child. Oh. Jail. <laughs> so due to complications from Rosemary's birth, Eleanor was unable to have any more children. Oh. In 1977, she married Stephen Wozniak, and they raised four foster children. John also remarried, and he and his second wife had two children. In 1987, he began searching for Rosemary. This search did not locate Rosemary, but it did put him in contact with Eleanor. They became friends, and with the blessing of both their spouses, they continued to search for their daughter. I wish they could have gotten back together, though. I know. Wouldn't that be such a nice love story? So, I mean, it's kind of terrible, but kind of great. So, the result of this case is that it's solved. Eleanor and John's daughter, Sally Riley, was found after her co-worker saw the broadcast. She had known that she was adopted and received some information about Eleanor, but she was never able to locate Eleanor. She shared it with her co-worker, who realized that she was, the Eleanor and, that she was Eleanor and John's long-lost daughter. A few days after the broadcast, Sally was reunited with Eleanor and John. They were able to meet their their grandchildren for the first time. Uh, sadly, John died in 2011 at 87 years mm. old. 
But this is the sweetest it's reunion. It's a really sweet reunion. Uh, yeah, I love that. This is a great lost love. Oh, and at one point, I, I guess there was an organization called the Society for Reunited Reuniting Families or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was involved in making this happen. And I guess that's my new dream job. I don't know. Are they hiring? Aww. I want to like, like my, if my work could be like lost loves, that, that would be, be so amazing. Great. I'm not sure how big of an industry that is, but that could be, you could be a, become a private detective. That could be Call what you special in, specialize in. I feel like I wouldn't have a knack for that though. I don't know. Well, I just know there's only I, one way to find out. That's true, and it's you starting a private detective business tomorrow. <laughs> this is the sweetest lost love. I don't know. I'm, it seemed like Rosemary was pretty happy in her life. We don't learn a ton about that, but I hope that learning the whole circumstances of how her parents were coerced and tricked into this adoption and it's not what they wanted. I hope that I don't know mended some wounds for her, made her yeah. feel better that. It really she just, was always the circumstance wanted. of racist times, and yeah. They, they, yeah, they loved her, and yeah. they wanted to get married and take care of her, and they just weren't allowed to because of disgusting reasons. Yeah. So oh, this one was a really this and was a it seems like love. they had a really nice reunion and got along, and I, it, I hope they, yeah, were able to keep in touch. And it's just so sweet. I love it so much. All right, your okay. next one is less heartwarming. Yeah, this is actually way less hard. So, okay, now you're on the couch. Maybe you got your cocoa. You're like, oh, this last love. I could cry because America is so horrible, but also cry because I'm so happy these people got back together. And then I was like, well, here's a downer. <laughs> now we're going to talk about a drunk driving death. Yeah, it's 1991 in Florida. There's a deadly highway accident that takes the life of 71-year-old John Constable and eventually his wife, Virginia. And this is what... Uh, Robert Stack comes out to tell us. All too often, the victims of drunk driving uh, become face a faceless statistic, except to the people who have lost someone they love. So I feel like they are trying to sort of highlight a national problem by focusing on, on one story. Mm-hmm. But also this person was wanted, but yeah. it has a little moralistic lesson element of please, yeah. please do not drink and drive yeah. because you could end up causing deaths as seen here. So we see a reenactment of John and Virginia getting into the car, kind of squabbling about whether they've packed everything. They're about to embark on a three-hour drive to Jacksonville to visit their daughter, who was expecting them. But they're only a couple miles from home when they are hit by James White, who was driving a pickup truck. He was a house painter and handyman. Uh, and Robert Stack's like, we don't know how long he'd been drinking before he hit the road or something like that. So we see him sort of like, you know, start to veer into the middle and he swerves to hit a car. But then when he swerves, like, you know, he like swerves too far. So when he swerves back on, he ends up hitting, you know, front on. Yeah. James and Virginia. The reenactment is brutal. Yes, it is. So I don't know. So, John died immediately on impact. Virginia was... She was airlifted. Yeah, to a trauma center. But unfortunately, because of her massive internal injuries, she died an hour after the accident. James White was put in an ambulance, and his blood sample was taken, and it would later show an alcohol level of 0.22, which is more than twice the legal limit of Florida. Their poor daughter was waiting for them to show up. So she, when they were really late, she eventually called the highway patrol just to sort of inquire. I'm sure she thought they had a flat tire. Maybe they needed help. So when the highway patrol actually shows up at her house, she doesn't really think anything of it 
right away because she's called them right so they show up and she's like oh thanks for responding to my call like what can you tell me about my parents and they're like yeah bad news so we have bad news and then they tell her that it was a fatal accident and she's like oh my god well you know which person died and they have to be like both yeah it's so horrible Uh, so james was in the hospital with broken ribs and a broken jaw that was wired shut and his family came to help him because i feel like they're much more understanding about their drunk driving relative than my family would be yeah because on the third day his family is like wheeling him around in a wheelchair and they're they at least in the reenactment they pass the nurse's station and the nurse is like uh visiting hours are over where are you going they're like oh we're just taking him on a little walk to get some fresh air and she's like all right we'll be back in half an hour but no they've snuck james out and so that he can flee prosecution for the deaths there's nothing but dirt bags in this one uh apparently they had been coming every day and getting him up to walk around and yeah the they police, were like the, helping with his rehab the police officer they interviewed for unsolved mystery said that one 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 night they just kept on walking yeah don't break really, your relatives out of the, he just killed two people i feel like my family would be so supportive in almost every situation but kind of not this yeah because he has a history of drunk driving and has actually bit had legal problems from it before right. it's not like this is the first time something like this has happened uh-huh um he's failed to get his behavior under control and when, two people are dead and now yeah now two people are dead unsolved mysteries just said he had a long history of drunk driving arrests I don't know if any charges had been brought or whatever in the past, but um, when the police tried to find him after he's broken out of the hospital, uh, it turns out that the light, the re- re- ugh, the address on his driver's license is not his actual residence. They go to that address and the people there are like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And it seems like he just used that because it was like a county, an address in a county that he wasn't in trouble with in Florida. Sounds like it. So, the, the, this goes out to the Unsolved Mysteries viewer. Have you seen this dirtbag, James White? He needs to answer for his crimes. Yes. And we get an update that he is captured. Two days after the broadcast, viewers contacted the police. This I'm reading this from Unsolved Mysteries Wiki, claiming that they had seen White at a bar in Burlington, Vermont. He was arrested in Burlington soon after. Two weeks later, he returned to Florida to face the charges. He pleaded no contest to two counts of DUI manslaughter and was sentenced to 11 years in prison and 15 years of probation. His driver's license was permanently revoked, and he was also ordered to pay $12,000 to cover the burial expenses of James and Virginia. It's really, really sad. So he was released in 96. In 2010, he was found in violation of his probation. Oh my God. And turned to prison. Oh. He was released again in February 2013. This is a man who cannot, like, learn a lesson. No. I realize he's probably struggling with addiction, but this is putting other people in danger. And he, seriously, James, if you're listening, please call a cab seriously use an uber we need you to not be drinking and driving and the daughter when she's interviewed for Unsolved Mysteries, so she's, sad she's like this man has no remorse which is really true yeah he's not he, willing to face the consequences right. of his actions he has no remorse for the fact that he's killed two people and he's willing to just run off yeah and not uh and then go out and do it again yeah so this poor daughter had to bury both of her parents oh it's terrible and he only had to pay $12,000 to cover literally their burial expenses. That's very sad. But I'm glad sad. that this is another instance where Unsolved Mysteries helped bring a dirtbag 
to justice. Thank you, Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, he Mysteries. has a mustache, but not eligible. <laughs> no, never. Okay. Now, the mo- moment we've all been waiting for. Dun, 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 dun. Samantha, cheers. Cheers. To the yetis of the world. We're raising our glasses. Okay, I'm going to... Uh, clink. Uh, okay. We you just- may have recalled earlier this season, I said, my kingdom for a yeti. I wanted a mystery about a yeti so bad. And here it is. And well, I manifested that shit and it came to me. Or as Robert Stack would call it, a yeti. Or how, yeah. does, Ra- how does Robert Stack pronounce it? It's very... He a enunciates. Yeti. A yeti. A yeti. A yeti. So the Himalayans are home to the world's highest mountain and one of its most intriguing mysteries. For centuries, the Sherpa people, native to the Himalayas, have told frightening tales of strange half-man, half-ape called the yeti. Yes. At last. The Yeti is also known as the Abominable Snowman. <laughs> oh, why is that, Samantha? Where did that name come from? So to the Sherpas, Yeti has always been very real and very much alive. Some Western explorers have found convincing evidence that the Sherpas may be right. Uh, when the fr- first explorers arrived in the Himalayas and encountered the Sherpa people, uh, actually, was it that they saw Yeti? Anyway, they, he was described as smelling very bad. And so they first started calling him the abominably smelly man, <laughs> which didn't have a very good ring to it. Ladies, we're not talking about your husbands. No, I've already told Mac he's the abominably <laughs> smelly man. <laughs> but in the, it didn't have a very good ring to it. So in the newspapers, they eventually shortened it to the abominably abominable man and then the abominable oh, snowman. snowman. But I really think they should have stuck with abominably smelly man. Okay. I don't know that I really ever thought that much about Yetis or Abominable Snowmen before this segment. I'm not sure I knew that those were the same thing. I also definitely thought that they had white fur. I've always pictured them with white fur, and maybe it's from that Christmas movie. I think it's because when you say Abominable Snowman instead of Smelly Man, (laughs) it seems like it would be white. If it was the Abominably Smelly Man, it'd be brown. Yeah. Because it probably smells like shit. Yeah. Yeah, so apparently the first Sherpa people... Uh, told explorers that the Yeti smelled very bad, and that's where Abominably Smelly Man came from. Do you think that they were from. implying Lake U? Maybe. Maybe like, that was a misunderstanding. They were like, oh, explorers, you, you smell terrible. And they probably really did. They probably really did. They were, like, covered in lard and just sweating. And they were like, could you, like, go home and also clean up? And maybe never come back? And never come here? we already and live here? try to steal our or mummified yeti hands. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to the heist later. All right. So several expeditions have uncovered mystifying stories of strange human-like creatures who live in the Himalayas. In- what noise do you think a yeti makes? What? <laughs> one guy. Whoa. One guy who I think just mis- mistook a yeti for his own reflection later in the sh- in that <laughs> in the segment describes a very loud shrieking, but oh. that could be anything. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what it sounded like. Oh, okay. Oh, several expeditions have uncovered mystifying stories of strange human-like creatures who live in the Himalayas. In 1951, Eric Shipton, a world-famous mountaineer, came across a curious set of tracks. This was the first clear evidence that the Yeti might in fact be real. And we see a Mm -hmm. photograph of it. Um, It's described as a very is a very big piece of physical evidence because it shows toes, uh, individual toes. It showed a squat square footprint, which a lot of other expeditions had also found, but not had good photographic equipment with them. I mean, it looks real fake, but... Uh, yeah. Or maybe a bear? I don't know. Like... It kind of looks like you found a big, slightly deformed leaf and you just, like, stepped on it to make a print. These are footprints in the snow, primarily, which one, like, explorer later tells us that 
snow can like blow away and distort what you're seeing. So who knows? Uh, We do see a plaster mock-up of the footprint. It's 13 inches long and 8 inches wide. It didn't look like it was made by man or ape, uh, according to people that have described it. In 1957, (laughs) a test... That's how I'm going to describe everything from now on. What kind of dog do you have? Neither man nor ape. (laughs) You have neither Great Dane nor German Shepherd. Yeah. It's like, okay, okay, but what is it? Very helpful. (laughs) In 1957, a, a Texas oil man named Tom Slick. Okay, can we talk about that name? That <laughs> he was an oil man and his name was Tom Slick. That's like a cartoon. I know. I That's know. not real. <laughs> I don't believe anything in this segment. Not because it's about Yetis, but because this guy's name is supposedly Tom Slick. I know. No. I know. Garbage. He he and explorer Peter Burns set off for the Arun Valley in northeastern Nepal in search of the Yeti. Peter Byrne tells us how he came to believe that yetis are real. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. He says, quote, Tom Slick's interest in the beginning was to find out if the yeti were really there, and that's the reason he came on the first reconnaissance. I had been hearing about the yeti for years, ever since I was a child, but I think that what eventually convinced me that they were there was meeting with the Sherpa people and talking to them face to face. They viewed the yeti as a real living creature, not as a mythical creature. They called him the hairy man that lived out there separate from them. <laughs> Do you think they were just trying to scare the white people away, though? Maybe. So They're like, hey, maybe don't come here, because there's, like, a hairy dude. That and smells really bad. Smells so bad. And you wouldn't want to meet him. And he's got big feet that also smell bad. So maybe move along. <laughs> that could very well be the case. That's my theory. So he describes on this expedition bringing eight to ten pictures. They had photos of a chimpanzee, a gorilla, and then a doodle of a primitive man. And they claim that when they showed those photos to the native people, they insisted that the Yeti looked most like the primitive man. They probably just picked the scariest one. Probably. Or the one that wasn't a photo. Or the one that matches what they've always... I mean, these people go into these expeditions with preconceived notions about what they're going to find. So... I don't know. Take everything with a grain of salt. This isn't very scientific. I feel like this was a prank by the Sherpas. They're like, oh, yeah, that guy. He's that way. Just keep walking forever. (laughs) So Slick and Byrne decided to split up to cover a wider search area. As Peter Byrne tells it, each made his own startling discovery. So he says, we started out from our camp in the early morning and we simply chose a mountain and I came across a line of footprints. I simply chose a mountain. Yeah. Just a, wow. Great process to this. Look, not scientific. There's a mountain. I simply chose a mountain. In another part of, so they saw these footprints. In another part of the valley, Tom Slick and his Sherpa guides discovered a similar set of tracks, but these ones are important because they were in mud. Finally. So. Finally, some tracks we can believe. Mud it's tracks. important to note that there are large bears living in these areas, but we never attribute these tracks to bears. Also, Sherpas, who I've decided love pranks. Maybe they, I mean, honestly, they probably do. It'd be <laughs> fun. Could you imagine? That's what, I mean, that's what I would do. Be like, yeah, there's a monster oh, yeah. out there. Watch out. So a plaster cast. This guy's gonna believe anything we say. Watch this. Oh yeah, he's really hairy and smelly, and he went that way. And then they like run after him, and they're just like, ah. You would laugh for the rest of your life. About I know. That. I Remember know. those dummies that showed up, and then they came back because they believed us. Yeah, that would be hilarious. I'd love to show you where the yeti is for five hundred pieces of gold. <laughs> How can you not scam someone like that? For real, they're just asking for scams. Hello, I'm here visiting. Do you have any scams? 
They might as well. All right. So a plaster cast of the footprint was shipped to the United States to be analyzed. The print measured 10 inches long and 7 inches wide. According to anthropologist Dr. George Agonio, it was similar to the footprint discovered by Eric Shipton six years earlier. Yeah, the toes are, like, not quite as creepy looking. They're more puffy. Yes. It's like a foot of um, a marshmallow. So then in February... It reminds me of Booberry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the cereal? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> They're very squat toes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would be interested in seeing how they compare to bears footprints because i feel like they're probably similar all right in then in february 1958 peter byrne embarked on another expedition on this trip trip he met a buddhist monk who had an amazing story to tell this was his quote he likes scotch this old man and (laughs) one one evening while we were sitting there having a drink and talking he said to me you know that up in the temple we have a hand would you like to see it and i said yes so the only answer to that question is yes (laughs) Of doesn't, course. Doesn't matter if you're looking for a Yeti or not. Samantha, up in this temple, we have a hand. Do you want to see it? I'm already running towards the temple. Yeah. It doesn't Before matter. You can even finish that sentence. It doesn't matter if that's your impending death. Like, that's no. just how you're going to go. I'm going to go see that hand. So, yeah. at the top part of the temple, he sh- was shown a hand, which was about the size of a human hand cut off at the wrist. He said, I considered it very significant, and I took some pictures of it immediately. He asked the Buddhist monk if he could take the hand. Because he's so entitled and selfish. He assumes he could. And of course, the monk said no. And then he asked if he could take a piece of it, and the monk said no. Uh, You know how you go to someone's sacred place, and they show you something really special, and then you go, can I take a piece of it? (laughs) Like, imagine if it's like, oh, here is the cross. Jesus died on. Oh, really? Can, can I, I have some? Can I cut no. a piece off of it? No. You can not for you. No. <laughs> You're lucky I'm even showing this to you, guest. Pretty much. You're so fucking rude. This guy is rude. So, the photographs of the Yeti hand were unlike anything scientists had ever seen before. Was it human? Was it <laughs> ape? like we've never seen anything so stupid. <laughs> Take this away. <laughs> Or was it an entirely new species? That's what Robert's dad asked. Uh, they needed the actual hand, of course, to actually analyze what it was. The next year, Peter Byrne... Uh, so then there, Peter went to this conference. This is the best reenactment ever. Uh, it's at this, like, hoity-toity, like, lunch step. They're Tea having lunch. Or something? Yeah. yeah. Every, it's just a bunch of dudes smoking. There's a few, like arm candy ladies there and then uh peter is talking to this doctor this anthropologist i'm not really sure who he is and he's talking about how the the hand and the guy is like well you would really need to to we're, see the hand we're, old sport. we're really gonna need the hand you understand and the the peter burns was like well i can't get it and then he just pulls a paper bag out from under his seat and plops it on the table and out tumbles a human hand. That's been the all the little bones are attached. Yes, which I think is something Samantha should just start carrying around with her. Just a hand. Yeah, so that when people I don't know are annoying you or something, <laughs> you can just totally change the the course of the conversation. <laughs> just plopping. where people are like, Samantha, did you watch the Super Bowl? And you're like, Let me tell you something. And then you reach out, you grab your paper bag, a hand falls, and you're like, This is a human hand. And then you don't have to talk about sports. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great strategy. I'm gonna Because definitely... people are like, oh my god, why do you have this? Do you just carry this around with you? And you're like, yes. yes. <laughs> 
brilliant. <laughs> and he's like, well, I probably couldn't steal the whole hand, but I could steal a finger. Yeah, so then the next year, Peter Byrne returned to the monastery with another bottle of scotch, got the monk drunk, and then pulled the I don't thumb. believe any of this. But... He pulled the thumb off of the hand and then took the thumb from the human hand and then wired it on to the Yeti hand. Like, they would have noticed that was different. I don't know how often they, like, looked that closely. <laughs> he said it took him a really long time. So maybe he did a really good job. In the reenactment, he literally just winds some wire around this, like, plastic bone. But... <laughs> But I don't know. I don't know. They had to look different. The idea of sneaking into a temple, getting a monk drunk, and then stealing the thumb off a mummified Yeti hand. This is like some real grade F Indiana Jones bullshit. And the guy who did it is interviewed for Unsolved Mysteries, and he's talking about it like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course I snuck back in there and stole a piece of their artifact. Which, I'm acting like this monk was a drunkard, but obviously I carry scotch with me wherever I go. That's one thing. This was the quote. I cut the finger off, and I replaced it with the human finger. It took Mm -hmm. quite a long while to wire the whole thing together and put it all back together and put it back in the box. And nobody ever knew anything about it and everything. Everybody actually was perfectly happy. They still had the hand, and it still had its fingers. Well, minus one. Yeah, it kind of didn't, dude. (laughs) Because you stole one of them. (laughs) So the finger was brought back to London and sent to Dr. George Agonio for examination. He said, kind of like snarkily, that he sent it to 20 experts, which thought that they should look at the hand, and they were equally divided about whether or not it was human or whether it was some type of primate, known or unknown. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, Dr. Agonio then also put a tissue sample. But how would you look at it and go, oh, this is Yeti? 100% Yeti. That's the thing. How do you prove it's a new species? It's just like a piece of bone. At the time, with the technology at the time, I don't know how you would... Look yeah. at Curtis. Oh, he's rolling around on the ground. He's the cutest. Oh my god. He's the cutest. So he also put I a tissue sample... I should have named him Little Yeti. Damn. You could have called him the abominably sn- smelly dog. <laughs> that's Lenny. Yeah, well, that's true. So uh, he put a tissue sample aside and kept it in his desk. Uh, it remained there for more than 30 years. <laughs> you know how you just have a piece of skin that might be from a Yeti on your desk? Yeah. And you never do anything That's with normal. it? So when Unsolved Mysteries learned of the bone fragment in his desk, they asked the University of California to analyze it. The results were inconclusive, but seemed to indicate that the tissue probably came from a human hand. And then this is like my favorite part, because this doctor of nuclear medicine, Dr. Jerry Lowstein... Basically says, yeah, uh, this is the trouble with these sorts of analyses, is that if someone's a believer, they're just going to say, well, this is the evidence we need. You know, we we didn't expect it to be an ape, so the fact that it's a, a humanoid in origin, all likelihood, means that it's the missing link. Yeti, and then yeti, cut yeti. to Peter Burns saying word for word what the doctor just said. Well, he was obviously. Like, he said, well, obviously, we didn't think it was going to be an ape. Apes don't walk upright anyway, which is not true, Peter Burns. Learn more about apes. I don't know. <laughs> You're trying to find the Yeti. Like, maybe you should understand. Like, they do walk upright. What? He's really dumb. Okay. <laughs> Your disgust is delightful. He also has this, like, rich, ex- like, dude Ooh, accent. Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is just, like, I don't know. He's hilarious. Uh, he is, like, an ascot that's come alive. 
he's wearing this little scarf, like, and every he's really wearing a scarf, like it's c- yeah. completely ridiculous. Well, of course he is, Samantha. He doesn't want to catch a draft. <laughs> I I feel like in some maybe this was in a Sarah Vowell book. I remember just the tiniest fragment of this information that some of the earliest English explorers who would go to the North Pole just brought way too much shit with them because they didn't understand how to pack light, and that was part of the reason that it was like hard for people to make it to the North Pole is because they bought all this crap. <laughs> and this one explorer who went when they you know found his frozen body and all of his stuff, he had brought button polish. <laughs> He apparently didn't think he could survive in the wilderness without specific button polish. Polish for his button. And that makes me think of this dude who would probably think he was roughing it to, like, stay at the Four Seasons. You know what I mean? Like, this guy seems very pampered, and I'm sure he wanted to go to cocktail parties and tell stories about being in the Himalayas and looking for yetis, but in a way, he doesn't really give a fuck. Yeah. He is so full of himself and up his own ass. I believe that's true. So, basically, that's where we leave them, and then we get a few other Yeti sightings. So, Kurt Fritler shares his own unnerving account encounter. Oh, this is the guy that heard the noise. This is the the very thin photographer dude. Oh, I've heard a noise, too. Is that a Yeti? I once heard a noise. (laughs) He he said they made camp at 16,500 feet, when out of the darkness a very loud, piercing call began that sounded like nothing he'd ever seen heard before. It seemed to move around him. It circled their campsite. It would get closer and then it would get farther away. It would call intermittently and the call was always very loud and very piercing and very frightening. Mm-hmm. Then Reinhold Messner, who looks like a Yeti himself, says that he got... <laughs> Wait, is that the guy with the big red beard? Yes, and the luscious hair. So red. Yes. Such a full red Viking beard. So much He hair. wins MVM. Absolutely. Even though it's... this In this case, it's most valuable beard. The thickest hair also on his head I've ever seen. He looks like an extra from the show Vikings or Game of Thrones or something. Yeah, so he actually saw the creature from about 30 feet away. Sure he did. The quote was, it was my impression that it's bigger than me. It was quite hairy and strong with short legs. The body was quite dark, dark brown. It had black hair, long, long, like hair all over its whole body. And it had quite a lot of hair on its head, which I think is just him describing himself, (laughs) except that it had dark hair. He saw himself reflected in like a window or maybe a brook. (laughs) And he does seem a little bit vain. And so he was just like gazing and he's like, what? A Yeti. Uh, so then Peter Burns comes on again to say, I have to leave it open that I do not know what the abominable snowman is, but I feel that there is a very good chance, probably 50-50, that something resembling the thing they are looking for does exist. Mm-hmm. Look, maybe there's some Yetis out there. I kind of hope people never find them because they won't stay alive if they do. No. Do you think the Yeti has as tight an ass as Bigfoot? Oh my god. <laughs> We know from that that Bigfoot special uh, that the booty situation on Bigfoot. Look, all right, send us some Patreon money. If we get enough, Samantha and I are going to go to the Himalayas and we are going to invest. I feel like I did know, I know more about Yetis now than I did before this started. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about Yetis, no, I have to say. I can't say that I ever did. Uh, it does seem like the real moral of this is white people ruin everything. Yeah. So, I mean, that's true. That's just a true story. Um, it's pretty hilarious. The reenactments are great. Uh-huh. Highly recommend watching this segment. Yeah. It was a delight. It was a delight. I really enjoyed it. If you could get some, I don't know, pedophores, really make a day of it. Yeah. 
dress up possibly as a yeti or just put on your finest clothes yeah put on a nice wool sweater like yes the- uh-huh your oh, best slippers at one point robert's tag is like clearly in a on a hollywood set wearing like a parka <laughs> and then there's just like f- clearly fake snow they didn't even do a good job no. of spreading it out because it's just in lines yeah and i'm just like okay he's just behind a hollywood studio it's a nice parka though it's a nice parka but it's like perfectly puffy yes I'm like, are we? Are you? Are we supposed to believe you're in the Himalayas, yes. Robert Stack? They flew him to the Himalayas for that <laughs> shot of fake snow. Yes, he was like, mm, it's cold here. Can we just stay inside? They flew him to the Himalayas, but then they shot indoors because he was cold. Yeah, well, it's Robert Stack. You got to do what he, you got to do what he wants. <laughs> All right, one more mystery. Okay, now we're getting to an unexplained death, sort of. <laughs> Not even really. We're getting to unexplained bones. We see a different... So, we just saw a parka stack. Now, we see a brown leather jacket. Mm-hmm. So, we get two different casual stacks in this episode. A rarity. It opens up with, all of us have known people who have lived their lives outside the mainstream. That's me and Samantha. Adhering to their own rules. Marching to the beat of a different drummer. So, exactly. We're talking about us. Exactly a description of us. In life, we find their... Can't talk. Eccentricities. Oh, now I can't say it. I, I said it in my head. Eccentricities. 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 I can't even say it. Eccentricities. Fascinating. But often, when a deeply private person dies, he leaves behind an unsolved mystery. Very poetic. Yeah, that's kind of like not true, but okay. We're learning about Dr. Carrie Stanton, who died in 1987. He was originally a doctor, but then in his 30s, he decided to turn ho- return home to his family ranch and run that. Except that his family ranch is no ordinary ranch. It is most of Santa Cruz Island, which is gigantic and looks gorgeous. It does. It really does. Off the coast of California. So he lived there mostly in solitude, taking care of the land he sort of felt like he was a shepherd of the land and was just put in charge of it but it wasn't really his uh i don't know yeah yeah sure nice cool um for some reason we spent some time talking about how he had sort of a weird schedule and he expected his guests to adhere to it including getting up really early in the morning to help with the cattle which i would have been like no thanks (laughs) also every day at 7 30 he was served a five course meal and he ate the same thing on like certain days of the week every single week i mean you know what you like yeah and then at 8 30 they would have coffee and the only dessert ever served oatmeal cookies very boring i don't know that i mean i, could I live like, my life like that i want i like a good oatmeal cookie but every day every day and nothing else you could never have a chocolate cheesecake yeah you have someone who can make you a five course meal but you don't have them make you cake pops every day or tiramisu or creme, creme brulee, brulee? <laughs> you aren't living your best no, life carrie stannon he could have used some more desserts but yes. anyway by nine o'clock just like samantha he was in bed <laughs> He also, on the island, he created a little cemetery for people connected to the island. It had a very small chapel in the middle and then a few graves. There was originally 14 graves, including his parents, which he had had exhumed, cremated, and reburied on the island. Because that was important to him. Um, But by 87, Carrie Stanton himself passed away, and then his grave was there, too. He left the entire property to the Nature Conservatory, which is awesome. He had passed away at 64. Um, so then that land is like preserved by the Nature Conservatory, like working with different agencies in California. 
I don't know. But by in 1990, on April 27th, the Deputy Agriculture Commissioner, who was there to, like, I don't know, survey some stuff or just whatever, part of who them knows? taking care of things, discovered an old metal box in a shed on the ranch, and inside was human cremains. When they exam, including what was apparently clearly human bone fragments. Yeah. So usually when you get cremains, they've been very evenly ground up. But if the reenactment to this is at all true, it was like little seashells. It was like a coffee can yeah. of like little seashells and bone bits, and and I it was not like a dust. Right. That's what I'm trying to say. Maybe cremation techniques back then were were different. I have no idea. But along in the bone fragments, they found a few clues to the identity of this person. There was a clothing snap that dated to the 1940s. There were false teeth that dated to the 1950s. And there was a platinum wedding ring that was from before World War II, is all they said about that. Um, And that they could tell from the bone fragments that it was an, an elderly person with minor arthritis, probably female. I don't so, know how they could tell that from chips of bone. But yeah, I don't know. Okay. There was, yeah, I feel, yeah, that doesn't make sense to me either, but whatever. Um, so the mystery is, who the hell did these bones belong to? And we are told that Carrie Stanton was very meticulous and labeled everything. So it seems unlikely that he was the person, he knew these were there and just left them. Yeah. Like, he also had been setting up the cemetery. Like, surely if he knew the remains were there, wouldn't he have put them in the cemetery or put them, like, somewhere where they belonged? Or labeled them, you know? Yeah, because they're literally just, like, in a container in a shed. Yeah. But, so this was an appeal to, like, does anybody know who these belong to? Should we be burying them in the cemetery? Should we be returning them to their family? Blah, blah, blah. There's nothing else about this. Wow. There is no update. And when I looked at it on Unsolved Mysteries Wiki, it says there's actually no outside verification aside from the Unsolved Mysteries segment on the discovery of these bones. Oh. What happened to them? I don't know. It almost, like, implies Unsolved Mysteries just made this up. (laughs) It's like, there's not a single newspaper article on anything about the discovery of these bones. Oh, okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, I, I'm guessing it has someone someone connected to his parents, and maybe his parents, like, planned to do something with the mm. remains and never got around to it, but also maybe those were just seashells, and Unsolved Mysteries <laughs> made this all up. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? But that is our last mystery. All right. Well, let's rate the episode. So, mysteriousness. Hmm. Okay. Let me think. The Wanted isn't mysterious. No. Uh, the Lost Love isn't mysterious. No. Yeti, I guess, is mysterious? It's really actually not that mysterious. No. We don't know who these bones belong to, but it's also kind of a shrug, a little bit. Yeah. Were there ever bones? We, that's a mystery. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Is Unsolved Mysteries just flat out? Is none of this real? None of these people died. Robert Stack isn't even a person. No- <laughs> Trench coats haven't been invented. It's all lies. Uh, thumb sideways. Yeah. Reenactments. I have to say a thumbs up. Thumbs absolutely. Because the Yeti ones are so hilarious and that hand coming out of a paper bag. Is there an Unsolved Mysteries GIF of that? I need a GIF. I think I do. I need a GIF. Unsolved Mysteries GIFs. Call us um, up. Uh, yeah, thumbs up for reenactments for thumbs, sure. I, I would like grow extra thumbs to give this a thumbs up. <laughs> what do you think about the fashion? Actually, great fashion in The Lost Love. Yeah, absolutely. I love the retro fashions in there. I love her 
being super stylish and at one point reenactment Eleanor and reenactment John are wearing like Christmas sweaters and yeah, they're, they're like in out the in the snow flirting kissing. with each other it's really adorable yeah so fashion I would give a thumbs up yeah. you also get to see this hilarious English explorer guy who you kind of like can't believe could ever sleep in a tent <laughs> and yeah thumbs up thumbs up and then robert stack i'm gonna say thumbs up again because yeah. we get two different casual stacks we get him pretending he's in the himalayas when he's clearly not we get him begging you not to drink and drive we get him talking about what iconoclasts me and samantha are yeah it's thumbs great up. absolutely thumbs up uh out of a possible five robert stacks four four this is definitely a four this is solid we you have, have a good lost love the lost love is you're gonna pull out your heartstrings i feel like they should make a movie out of their story yes possibly with a slightly happier ending i can't praise the yeti thing enough absolutely i really think the sherpa people were just like yeah go that way away from me (laughs) (laughs) and i respect that even though the mystery of the bones isn't that interesting seeing the island and hearing about this kind of eccentric dude was cool it was cool yeah i think a four it seems like a good i think it's very solid is it a nudist colony no is it a magic rock no no but but it's it's a solid there. entertainment you it's will not there. regret watching this highly one. recommend do you know much about, about the explorers club no i read a book recently about this exotic fish the exotic fish trade which uh-huh. probably sounds more boring the book was actually pretty good it's called the dragon behind the glass but i was reminded of that book when i was watching this episode because it that book includes some history of the explorers club which was just oh. like rich men primary rich white men that like got together periodically to talk about going exploring you know in places sure. where people oh, already yeah. live, in places where people already live I but discovered they, this. The they, home of other people. They had this annual, like, banquet. It has a name that I'm escaping me now. But they used to eat exotic animals. Like, they would eat okay. giraffe or, like... Disgusting. Yeah. Like, all like up until, like, not that long ago, they would eat, like, hummingbird. You know, like, just... The idea of a bunch of rich, pompous white men getting together to, like, eat endangered species makes me want to... Yes. I don't know. And talk about going exploring places that, yeah, are not unexplored in you any way. You won't believe the people I took advantage of in my latest trek. Yes, it's gross. That's, uh, that's I wondered if these people were in the Explorers Club and if that was It does that. have that vibe. Yeah. But I don't know too much about it. That, just, should be, that should be the villain of a movie. Can we get a movie where the villain is the Explorers Club and then... I don't know. Me and Samantha have to take him down. <laughs> that would be something like a that. Great plot for a movie. Someone write up that screenplay. Yeah, that would be really good. Okay, so you already did your recommendation. I already did my recommendation. I am going to tell a very brief story okay. that I was reminded of while All right. we were doing this, which we were talking about having a piece of a yeti <laughs> in your drawer. So when I was in the seventh grade, we did the frog dissection lab. Yes, did I you remember? Did it you well. also do that? We dissected frogs. And rats, I think. Okay, so that's when we did frog dissection. And me and my lab partner, I guess I shouldn't say his full name, but his name was Luke something. We uh, we got a prize because we successfully removed the brain and the brain stem of Ooh. the frog. So I was very excited about this. And I'm sure this would not happen today, but my science teacher was like, if anyone wants to bring their frog home, <laughs> show up with a jar. <laughs> so I showed up with the next day with a pickle jar. <laughs> And my teacher was like, yeah, no one else took me up on this. (laughs) Weird. Weird. And I was like, that's weird. Give me my frog. (laughs) 
So I had in my parents' basement until like not that long ago. <laughs> My seventh grade award-winning frog dissection <laughs> in formaldehyde. And my brother also brought home some things he dissected, some sheep eyes and whatever. And they were just in Your jars. just kept these things? Yeah, they were just in jars in the bathroom me and my brother used <laughs> forever. I think my mom insisted they were kept in the bathroom in case they broke. That makes sense. But she allowed us to have them and they just, you know, sat there on this... And I think only... Well, yours, only yours won an award. Yeah. That's- I got to wear a frog hat for the rest of the day. So, um, <laughs> so they were just there for years. And maybe we only got rid of them, go like, I don't know, 10 years ago. But they were there for quite a while. So then I'm at my 10-year high school reunion. I'm introducing Mac to people. I've been... I've been back I'm talking behind their back for years, right? Yeah, Mac, you gotta meet this person. I've talked so much crap about them. Oh, it was great. It was a great time. And then I see my old lab partner standing in the corner not talking with his wife. And I was like, Oh, you know, he doesn't have anyone to talk to. I'm gonna go and tell him that I kept that frog for so long. <laughs> Right. And I, so I go over and I was like, oh, you know, introduce me to your wife, blah, blah, blah. So I tell this story that I just told you. And he just goes, wow, that's really gross. <laughs> and I'm just standing there. <laughs> then there's an awkward few beats of silence. <laughs> and then I literally, like a dad, just slap him on the back and go, well, enjoy your night. <laughs> and walked away. Amazing. So that's a little. Do you have a picture of this thing? No, I that's don't. That's a damn shame. Uh, what anyway. a treasure that was. We say treasure isn't real, but... <laughs> what a tre- I think we named him Kermit. What a <laughs> what a treasure, Kermit and his old pickle jar, just sitting in a bathroom for years and years and years oh. as we brushed our teeth and took baths, <laughs> sitting there without his brain, the brain separate with the stem floating in the little jar. <laughs> so amazing. I, I might have been a weird kid. I don't know. So amazing. Well, look, look at now you have a very successful Unsolved Mysteries podcast. It all kind of makes sense. Yeah. I've really, I feel like this podcast is, and I'm not actually saying this as a joke, despite my voice. I really feel like this podcast has helped me get back to my roots. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Time for your recommendations. <laughs> okay. So, I've totally abandoned trying to read spooky books this month, but I do have a book recommendation. I want the full title for you, so let me pull it up. Mm. Well, we can also update people on how we felt about The Haunting of Hill House, oh. something we've been teasing for like yeah, four episodes. absolutely. We'll get to that. This is going to be pretty short. Okay. So uh, I've been listening to a lot of books on Scribd, uh, which I recommended a few episodes ago. And Scribd is cool because it has like a little recommended recommendation of the day. And I was really like not sure what I was going to pick up because I had read a couple things that weren't very good. And I was like not sure that I wanted to read more spooky stuff. And then this was recommended... It's Unthinkable, An Extraordinary Journey Through the World's Strangest Brains by Helen Thompson. Helen Thompson is this brilliant science writer who has, like, I don't know, a PhD. She writes for all kinds of different science publications. And, oh, she's a, she's also, a, like, a neuroscientist. I don't know. She's brilliant. It's interesting because I had just read The Mystery of the Exploding Teeth, and she, at the beginning of this book, talks about how um, when scientists used to write about case studies, they wrote about the actual person. It wasn't just, like, the symptoms in a bubble mm-hmm. or, like, whatever the malady or whatever unusual thing that was happening. It would be, like, a whole story about the per- what the person liked, how they spent their day. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't, like, divorce, like, the person from, you know, the unique case study or whatever it was about. 
And so she was really interested in about that, and she wanted to write about, um, in particularly the, the human brain, um, and especially like extraordinary brains. Um, but she wanted to write it and uh, write a book in a way that kind of got back to those roots and really told like the stories of the person in co- like in context with this other thing. So she tells the story of nine people that have unusual d- unusual brains. There's a person that. Um, could remember every day of his life mm-hmm. in vivid detail. Uh, he could literally go back and tell you what he did on May 2nd, uh, every May 2nd for his entire life. Just wow. like, completely accurately. That's actually some of that that runs in my family, on my dad's side. People Interesting. with photographic memories who yeah. can remember like, oh, on the 375th page of this book the third line is this that's amazing yeah uh but what's interesting about people that can remember there's other people that can remember uh it's like autobiographical memory is that they don't have photographic memories they Mm. actually don't have like a better memory for other things than anyone else it's just that they can remember anything about themselves and what they've done fascinating um i know and then she talks about like um mirror touch synesthesia i think is what it's called where you can feel other people's pain so, like, if you're sitting in front of me and you, like, bite your lip, like, if I had that, I could feel my, like, I could feel the actual sensation on my own lip. I feel like that's something I've wished on other people. It sounds like, a ve- okay, so she interviews someone who has it who's a doctor. Yeah, which means exactly. That he, which means that he, like, feels people's physical pain all day long. Like, that sounds absolutely wild. But have you ever been trying to, like, explain pain to a doctor and they don't understand what you're saying? Yeah, I think wish- he's probably a great doctor. And you're with, like, oh, I wish I could just, like make you feel that for yeah. a second so you like got what i was saying like whoosh. absolutely yeah so uh and i think he could also feel other people's emotions um which he use I, I think he uses it to be a better doctor wow um there was let's see I, I don't know a whole bunch of things but it's very fascinating book and what i liked about it the most is that she sort of puts it in context she really tells the people's stories and she talks about how we can use um like these people's extraordinary brains to kind of understand ourselves better and understand like our relation to reality, our relation to ourselves. I don't know. It was very fascinating. This just makes me feel boring though. Uh, yeah, I guess. But <laughs> there's also, you know what else is cool is she talks about how you can like use some of this knowledge to like change your own brain. Like she talks oh. about how you can like remember, cause there's people um, who win like, rem- like me- memorization championships. Yeah. That aren't any different than you or me. It's just how they train their brain. Okay. And you can, like, literally train yourself to never forget, to be able to memorize anything. She talks about how you can make yourself hallucinate by just, like, using a ping pong ball and sitting in a dark room, which okay. I haven't tried yet, but I kind of want to. I don't know. Um. So, yeah, it's really, really fascinating. And I liked that she didn't, she was telling people stories, but it wasn't to, like, use them as entertainment. It was, like, very, like, let's take a look at, like, how our brains can do these amazing things and how... Um, we can better understand the way like we understand ourselves and I don't know. Yeah. It was very cool. It was kind of a little over my head because I don't have a PhD in neuroscience, but you don't. it was written in an accessible way, which I appreciated. Have you considered getting a PhD in neuroscience? I have not and hmm. I, I won't, but <laughs> I liked this book. Can I get a PhD on Victorian seances? That would be, you should. I was thinking the other day, like, man, if they had taught me about the history of the occult in school instead of about the revolutionary war five times i probably would have been a much better student true right we learn so many things in school that just we don't 
Were you just, I feel like, how many times did we learn about volcanoes? Just Too I, many times. I swear, just over and over. Like, we didn't have time for something else. I've used that knowledge in no ways. Could we have learned about the history of gargoyles or something yeah. while we were learning about the storm on Jupiter for the eighth time? Oh my gosh. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Could have we have been learning about parlor tricks and automatic writing? <laughs> Because I would have gotten an A++ on that unit. Yes. Okay, so do we want to talk about our thoughts on The Haunting of Hill House? I mean, I loved it. I really liked it. I thought I, it was super good. Yeah. Uh, I finished the book a couple nights ago. <laughs> Literally finished it seconds before I needed to go to book club. I enjoyed talking about it. I enjoyed it, so I've never read anything else by Shirley Jackson. Um, And I thought, I don't know, it was surprisingly funny. Yes. It's really enjoyable. It's more... I mean, it's spooky, but it's also very lighthearted at times. It is actually pretty funny. I laughed out loud a few times during it. It's very dismissive of men, which, like, is kind no, of my shit. This, listen, this book has everything. <laughs> Ghosts. It has Female woman- characters. Men revealed to just be boring nonsense that are around really just to cause tension. Something we talked about in book club is that this book has a couple male characters that seem to only exist to like move the plot along or like motivate the female characters or whatever, which is something that's usually reversed. It's yeah. usually there's female characters in a story just to motivate the male characters or like, you know, move the plot. And I was kind of like, that's really refreshing. I really liked it. And you even had one character that realized that, like, this dude was really boring. She was like, but there's nothing to him. He's actually quite dull. <laughs> and I was like, this book is great. So, yeah, really I feel like it. you can interpret it kind of different ways. It leaves some stuff ambiguous, but it's very readable and enjoyable. It's got great ambiance. Yes. Great spooky time read if you can... If you're still looking for that, I suppose you're listening to this possibly on Halloween. Yeah. If you want to stretch out your Halloween season a little longer. It didn't even occur to me that this episode is coming out on Halloween. Yeah, happy Halloween, everyone. Wow, I fucked that up. Happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I really liked it. I listened to the audiobook and I, enjoyed the reader a lot. So. I, I read the physical book and I enjoyed I enjoyed my experience reading it. It's pretty short. It's only like 230 pages yeah. or something. So kind of almost a novella. Uh yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I recommend. I, it wasn't. It didn't scare me, but it was creepy. No, but it was. I it, feel like it has a charming amount of just yeah atmosphere. Yeah, and I think Shirley Jackson does a really good job. Like the house is described as being just unsettling, like everything's slightly off, and her narration style and the way she describes things makes you similarly feel like everything's right. off. I feel like I never really understood what the house looked like. I was the characters are always lost in the house. I felt like I was kind of always lost in the house, never really understanding where things were in relation to each other. So, I mean, yeah, very, it's very, very well-crafted. Very skillfully done. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. One of the best things I've read. I heard it's much different wow. than the Netflix show, but I've heard the Netflix show is really good. I haven't watched it because I don't watch a lot of horror, but I'm, I, I think might I'll watch, watch it. the first episode and see what I think. I might watch it because I did really enjoy the book. I think so. I'm, I think I want that copy you have with the black yeah. pages that seems really cool it's it was really cool i'm gonna enjoy putting that on my bookshelf and i think i need to read we've always lived in the castle now yeah because i liked it so much yeah uh yeah i think that's so it that's nice i feel like we haven't done a fiction recommendation in a while so that's nice yeah all right no i think that's it happy halloween everyone happy halloween i hope you had a great spooky season if you didn't get to do everything you wanted to do just remember that you can cel- celebrate halloween every day it can live in your heart forever. It's really good advice. So don't 
Because I used to be like, oh, man, I wanted to do more, but I ran out of time. No. Just you make didn't. it your lifestyle. You didn't. Go find a thing about Victorian seances. Yeah. Or listen to Perhaps It's You. <laughs> and then the Halloween scene can live forever. Absolutely. Just become a weirdo. That's all I'm saying. Become a weirdo. Join us. The Iconoclast. Join us. Join us. Dear listeners. All right, you can join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Perhaps It's You. If you would like to send us a message, it's Perhaps It's You podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear your own paranormal tales, your ghost sightings, your UFO sightings. Tell us what weird things your parents have kept in their basements from your childhood. Yes. I would like to know that. Um, You can spend a little bit of your hard-earned cash on us uh, patreon.com slash perhaps it's you we are doing a tarot card documentary this month yeah which probably is if you're listening to this on thursday it might be out on friday i don't know before okay. the end of the month okay well friday would be the first so it maybe is already out <laughs> i don't really know we'll figure that out somehow. what are dates anyway time is but an illusion um we would love a five-star review from you on apple podcasts yeah keep our ego going um the recommendations are also all up to date on our website that's perhaps a do.com check it out there's our contact info and a little form if you wanted to send us a message that way yeah is that everything i think so Five listeners, go find a Yeti. Yes. Send us a Yeti Are you an abominably smelly man? (laughs) Yeah, don't steal from temples. That's just kind of a general rule. But if you find a Yeti finger on your own, send it to us. Yes. And also, if you find a magic rock, we deserve half. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Solve some mysteries. Bye.